From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the starting blocks, ready to answer your questions. Pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. Our host is he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology for EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good. Good to be here, as always, on a Friday with you, Jack. Yep, I'm coming Except to you I'm live. Except I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm coming to you live from the Legatus Summit in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Tonight is 60s Motown night, so you may hear the band rehearsing in the background. Um, We will will work through it, as they say. So we've uh, we've got a question here from Adam, Colin. He says, we were talking about baptism in RCIA, and one of the candidates says he thinks that original sin is a stain on the soul, but concupiscence is more psychological. Is he on the right track? No, concupiscence is is part of what original sin is about. Uh, when Adam and Eve were created, when they were ensouled uh, as a gift from God and given the divine life within thereby, when they sinned, they lost that divine life. They didn't lose their soul. They still had all their human faculties. But in losing that divine life, which was the way in which God had created man to be, there is now a deficit, a hole to be filled, if you will. And the consequence of that, the the guilt of it, of that sin, we call original sin. The consequence is what we are living with, and that consequence is the concupiscence. In other words, this, uh, the fact that our minds doesn't see, don't see the truth uh, clearly, uh, that should be quite an evident reality from the modern world, getting more and more evident every day. And that even in seeing the truth, our will has difficulty uh, following it and, and doing what the truth demands of us. And that is in part because of the weaknesses of our flesh, concupiscence. It's in part due to the bad examples of others, the world. And it's in part due to the temptations of the evil one, the first fallen, if you will, uh, the, the devil and his minions. Uh, and so we speak of those three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the flesh is the one 
uh, most directly connected with us as a human being, body, and soul, although the others are, are, are threats because precisely because we don't have the strength of the divine life within from the moment of our conception, and therefore our minds are darkened and we have this concupiscence, attraction to things which are not good for us, mostly because of our emotions, but also because we receive intellectual error, we receive bad example, and we receive temptations from the devil. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Patrick would like to know what's the difference between the extraordinary and ordinary magisterium. The extraordinary magisterium is when the Pope or a uh, ecumenical council of the bishops in communion, in union with the Pope, in other words, the Pope concurring, decide on something, uh, a truth of the faith, and is declared as revealed by God. That's an extraordinary act. You see those in the ecumenical council, certainly the great decisions of the early church regarding the nature of the Godhead, the nature of the incarnation, Mary's uh, role to that as the Theotokos, uh, and down through the ages, uh, Trent in the wake of the Reformation, certainly made a lot of dogmatic statements. You usually find, uh, you know, formulated in a canonical language, but there's usually a theological explanation which precedes that, which says you believe this or let you be anathema or let the person be anathema, condemned and out of the church, excommunicated. So those are extraordinary acts. The ordinary magisterium is the ordinary teaching authority of the bishop and so and, and of the pope. And so bishops issue pastoral letters and, and do canonical acts and so on. They're exercising their magisterium. They make laws for their diocese. They govern their dioceses. They teach uh, in, the name, uh, in the name of the church. Uh, they can't make new doctrine, obviously. That requires an act of the pope or the, an act of an ecumenical council. And so they, they carry on those, those things which is, was entrusted to the, the apostles, go out into the world, you know, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, and know that I am with you to the end. They're carrying on that apostolic office. And so that goes on all the time. And so the ordinary magisterium are those things which are in the teaching of the church that may not be defined. They may be on their way to some more formal dogmatic uh, explanation. Uh, they may be connected with, uh, with revealed dogma, which the church has defined. And then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, in an explanation he made of the Professio Fidei, which John Paul II published, which office holders in the church had to make, uh, spoke of this category of connected things. They're, they're true because the church has taught something which makes them necessarily true. So they're connected dogmatically or historically uh, with the declaration, and therefore they themselves are true. But they may not be explicitly defined. So the, all, a lot of those things, as well as the ordinary things that we know about the, the, the moral law and, and uh, even uh, dogmatic things in terms of... Uh, Catholic practice, which have been done always and everywhere in the church, all of these things as they're carried on and taught to the next generation of Catholics by the Pope and the bishops, constitute the ordinary exercise of the teaching authority of the church, which sometimes 
often and typically because of some problem or some contradiction of the truth, the church then steps in and either a council or with the pope or the pope by himself declares something quite solemnly. Some examples where that was not particularly an issue but just simply done would be the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, both of which de- declared by popes. I don't know that in either case there was evident contradiction of that in the church. Uh, the bishops gladly said, you know, uh, yes, Holy Father, we would love to see this declared, and having polled the bishops, he, he did so, and, or they did so. So sometimes uh, you could say it's for the glory of God and the, and the glory of the truth that things are declared, but very often it's because of contradictions made against some uh, already declared truth of the church. Uh, Ralph's watching us on YouTube, and he says, Not knowing who is in purgatory, can I make a list of, say, one to ten people and count down giving my plenary indulgences uh, with respect to who's in purgatory, or do indulgences need to be specific to a certain person? I think you can offer indulgences specifically, but it cannot be reduced in, in such a mathematical and kind of a legalistic way. We do all of those things according to the will of God. And so one might pray throughout their entire life for their deceased parents, for example. Offer Gregorian Masses, as I have done, uh, the 30-day Masses. Offering their, every time they pray for the dead, the dead they remember their parents. Uh, it's, it's not because we, don't, we believe they have a particularly heavy buildup of sin or something like that but because we don't know the result of our prayers. God does, and God makes that decision. So we, with confidence, we, we make those offerings. We, we do those plenary indulgences by name, if we wish, but we don't know for, with any, we can do with some confidence, believe we've done fulfilled all the conditions, including detachment from venial sin, but we don't know that we did, and we don't know how God will apply that. And so I think we always have to do it you know, thy will be done being the primary undergirding of, of all of our indulgences, all of our prayers, uh, and the things which we ask God to, uh, to bless us with. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Jonathan in Kerrville, Texas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. From Rome to your home with EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all of the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. As advertised, we start off in the Republic of Texas. 
Jonathan is a first-time caller in Kerrville. Jonathan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, Colin. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, uh, question for you. So, practicing Catholic, and I got into the habit, a good habit, of doing a rosary almost every day, and since then, probably about six months ago, five or six months ago, uh, I really feel like a strong impression, say for a particular friend or a person, and I mean, it could be anything from like, oh, she's pregnant, or she's going to have a miscarriage, or somebody's got cancer Mm -hmm. in the family, or something like that, and sometimes there's not always a, a name to the face or prophecy to the face or to the person, so I don't really know how to distinguish or or what to do. I just didn't know, how do I cultivate this mm-hmm. this gift? You know what I mean? Sure. Um, well, if, uh, if, it is a, if it is a divine gift, it would fall into uh, among the charismatic gifts. So we have, uh, we have the, what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about the gifts. There are the moral gifts, uh, faith, hope, and charity, uh, which he talks about in 13. Uh, and we cultivate those and uh, primarily. We can, as he say, we can seek, uh, we can seek to uh, cultivate the spiritual gifts, but according to God's will. Now, there are a number of caveats in that because one of the most difficult things in the gifts is, to, to, is the discernment. Uh, it should go without saying the individual is not the person who does that discernment, although they should they should discern, you know, according, say, the rules of St. Ignatius in the 30-day exercises. Does the exercise of this gift bring pre-peace, or does it bring, uh, you know, great anxiety and, and, and other things, uh, turmoil in the soul? Um, and he distinguishes between the good spirit and the evil spirit uh, by, by such means. But it really needs an external person to do that. Um, you know, if if it is a charismatic gift, it's something to do with the help of somebody, perhaps in your diocese's charismatic renewal, who uh, has some experience in this, or a priest who has some experience in this. In every diocese, there is generally a vicar for the charismatic renewal. Uh, there are individuals who are involved in it. Um, uh, as in any movement in the church, you don't necessarily take everything at faith's value because people may know, may know or not know exactly what the church's position is on some element. But at least you're showing goodwill, you're approaching, you're, you're asking the questions and, and so on, and you're seeking the guidance from those who do know in the, in the church and can guide you. The other way of having gifts, of course, obviously comes with sanctity. We see that the saints themselves, as they get closer to God, that deeper union with God disposes them ever more to a uh, gift of wisdom. We can cultivate this mostly by a prayer life, uh, and sometimes that may, may include insights, uh, whether into uh, the knowledge of truths that come in prayer, uh, whether by simply our following a line of thinking in our prayer that leads to some insight, which could be an acquired contemplation of the truth or an actual mystical gift uh, being given by God. Uh, again, these are all things which I think all Catholics at one point in their life or another probably experiences this. Um, one of the things that the guardian angel does for us is guiding us by lights. 
And uh, that's because he gives us intellectual lights. The difficulty is uh, he's very humble, and you don't know where they came from. We can think it's, oh, I had a great idea. Well, maybe it was your idea, and maybe it wasn't. So this can be done as an ordinary matter and may not represent even a gift per se, a gift generally being something with long-term implications that you are called upon to exercise. Again, in either case, whether it's mysticism, the growth in holiness, or whether it's charismatic renewal, find somebody who has the knowledge, the experience uh, in your diocese who can, can guide you in that. I think what you describe is altogether possible, but you get down to the question of discernment, uh, and that's where you can't do it on your lonesome. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. John is next up. He's in Bartlett, Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Uh, I was watching, or I have watched close to a year now, uh, the Franciscans mm-hmm. uh, have a, a, a way of the Via Della Rosa. Mm-hmm. And in it, on the eighth station, when Jesus meets the women, mm-hmm. uh, it, he says, if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when the tree is dry? And I I never knew Mm -hmm. what that meant. Sure. Um, I think there's an interpretation that could apply to individuals and it can apply to all, all human beings, all mankind. When he says that the tree is green and the women were weeping for him, he says, weep not for me, but for your children also. If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when the tree is dry? Christ is the green green tree. He's the tree that has living sap. He's the son of God. He is holy. He's absolutely innocent. Yet despite that, he's arrested by his own co-religionists, He's tried by the secular authorities, and he's put to death on a cross. The application of that to us as individuals is that we, can, we should aspire for holiness. Uh, but holiness obviously didn't guarantee that Christ would not go to the cross. In fact, he came to go to the cross. So with our seeking of holiness, obviously, will come the cross. In fact, the greatest saints are those who embraced the cross in union with our Lord. The sick and the dying who embraced the cross in union with our Lord often have a a very happy passing uh, to the next world because of of the joy and freedom that that embracing gives them. Then there are other people where the sap is dry. This is the world. It's those in the church who are of the world. And I think the application there is that general message. There can be a specific message regarding the days when the corruption in the world will be so great that the world, the church itself, maybe will be uh, suffer as our Lord suffered. Some, some have written and spoken about the passion of the church in our days. There seems to be 
a great persecution of the church. The world is totally turning against us, uh, against the beliefs and the teachings of the church, against righteous behavior in favor of unrighteous behavior. And it looks in many ways as if truth and goodness are being persecuted out of the world, which is what happened to Jesus. So in this way, the church as a whole and each of us as individuals in our life, in whatever time in our life this occurs or whatever in time in the life of the history of, of the church and the human race this occurs, can embrace the cross and choose to be united to our Lord. And I think that's really what it's about. We can expect what Jesus expects, and being good doesn't mean necessarily that we will escape it. It probably means more than anything uh, that we may have relative degrees of dryness and relative degrees of life in us, uh, but whether we are, are full of the divine life or we are absent from it, um, the, the cross will come. And I, I think there's good arguments that it, in our day we, we are seeing some of this lived out on the corporate level of the church and of all of those of goodwill, uh, even outside the church, who, who, who see what is happening in the world. Uh, so all of those are applications which you can make from the personal to the church to the world itself. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Bill is a first-time caller in Knoxville, Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bill, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, uh, my question is, um, uh, I'm, I'm not an Episcopalian, but I'm a Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. So uh, my question is in regards to uh, people coming in from the Church of England, mm -hmm. the Episcopal Church being baptized by and confirmed, actually, by uh, Episcopal bishops and um, mm -hmm. and lesbian priests and so on and so forth and so in my witnessing and my counseling you know with um, folks um, I have an individual that is in that really predicament sure um, mm -hmm. and I do want to say that you know from a Roman Catholics point to an Episcopal point uh, there's two different attitudes here in regards to the person's salvation to me. I think if you have holy orders, you you would think that uh, the, the bishops and priests mm -hmm. would follow that with uh, great discernment with their divinity. Uh, but um, my question is, is that person saved or not saved? Okay. Baptism requires no orders. It has, has to have the proper matter and form. Uh, the Episcopal Church, unless you have some errant... Uh, uh, Episcopal person, bishop, priest, deacon, or lay person, for that matter, who performs a baptism with words which are not suited to baptism. So the words are, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, while pouring water or immersing in water, uh, uh, either of those. Uh, if you change those words, I baptize you in name of the divine parent, the uh, divine child and the Holy Spirit or something like that because you have an aversion to, you know, the words father and son, uh, then it's not valid even if you're a Catholic. You know, even if you're the Pope, it's not valid. Uh, of course, the Pope hasn't done that, and presumably no bishop or Catholic priest would do that, although there have been some occasions where that possibility has uh, raised itself. 
So baptism is not an issue. Confirmation is a big issue, and holy orders are a big issue, because the Episcopal Church lost holy orders with the generation that followed the Protestantization of Anglicanism during the time of Queen Elizabeth under Cranmer. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations to another member of the EWTN Radio family. Holy Family Radio is celebrating their eighth year as an affiliate of EWTN serving Fairfield, Iowa. Congratulations to Mary LaFrancis and her team at Holy Family Radio from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. And, Colin, we're talking with Bill mm-hmm. about the sacraments uh, when someone moves from the Anglican Church uh, to the Catholic Church. Right, yeah, and especially if they're clergy. Uh, so the Catholic Church uh, form- did not, but f- formally, uh, by act of the Pope decreed in by Leo XIII in the late 1800s, that uh, Anglican orders were invalid. And that's because, obviously, when King Henry decided he needed to divorce uh, his wife, uh, he left the, you know, he, he made himself the head of the church in England, but he didn't make the, the, Anglic- the church in England Protestant. Uh, that came with his daughter, Elizabeth, and the influence of Protestant ideas, and that meant the destruction of the idea of the Mass as a sacrifice. That meant the end of the idea of a, uh, of a priestly ministry, which is a ministry of sacrifice. So he's a priest because the sacrifice of the Mass, he celebrates that, he does the things associated with that, confects the, confects the Holy Eucharist, um, and, and, and go, so on. So of the orders, the valid orders of Anglicans and any Protestant and anybody, a Jewish nurse, many Jewish nurses over the years have baptized dying babies who had just been born because the parents said, you know, if you, if the baby die, if the baby is dying, please baptize it for us because it requires doing, intending, doing what the church intends. In other words, to insert the person into the baptism, into the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord by using the formula which the church has always recognized. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the pouring of water, the immersing in water, and and, and so on. And that can be done by anybody, even non-Christians, with the right intention to satisfy, say, the desire of a person. for who is dying, an adult person who is dying without a, a Christian around or, or a baby in the circumstance I described. Confirmation requires not just the sacrament of holy orders, by exception it can re, uh, be done by priests, but they do that as a faculty from the person who's rightfully can do it, and that's the bishop. So uh, both the diaconate and or the diaconate, the priesthood and the episcopacy all require valid holy orders, and the Anglicans lost those when they Protestantized the Church. So 
confirmation and holy orders are not going to be accepted, but the baptism will be in such cases. Now, there are men who have come to the church in the last decades who took advantage of what was called the pastoral provision uh, and can still come into the church from the Anglican Church or the Lutheran Church or, or others. And um, in the case of the Anglican Church, there was a movement uh, going back into the 1800s because one of the things that brought John Henry Newman into the church was his, his, his belief that the Anglican Church was one of, you know, three, quote, Catholic churches. It was just the one for church in England. You know, there's the, all the Orthodox, there are the Romans, and there was the Anglicans. And he tried to prove that from the fathers of the church. He ended up a Catholic priest, bishop, cardinal, and saint. Uh, that didn't work out too well, but there was that similar m- movement in Newman's time that brought a desire to sort of bring back the Catholic ideas into the Anglican Church. And it's been quite successful, so much so you can really speak of a high church and a low church, I think, uh, in there, those with the more Catholic orientation and those with the more Protestant. And one of the things they tried to do is when certain groups in the 1800s separated from Rome over the dogma of papal infallibility, uh, and for other issues, the Polish National Church, the Old Catholic Church, and so on, who have valid orders, is men have gone to them to try to receive holy orders. The church, as far as I know, will still conditionally ordain them to the various levels of holy orders. And that simply means that you can do, if you're not sure whether a person is baptized, you could say, if you are not baptized, I baptize you. If you are not ordained, I if you, so on. And that is a conditional uh, ordination. And as far as I understand, and anybody who's been through this is certainly welcome to call and contradict me, absolute, uh, an absolute, um, an absolute actually, rather than a conditional ordination is required. Although there have probably been cases of conditional as well. But the point being, it's because we do not accept Anglican orders, even in those cases where a person says, well, I can prove a pedigree of ordination such, such, and such. And so that's, that's the great difficulty there. But uh, many have, have crossed this path and uh, made it successfully, uh, and God willing, many more, and we continue to move towards uh, the reunion, which is clearly the will of Christ expressed at the Last Supper, that... that the world may see and believe because we are all one, and God willing, that day will come. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. Three open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Next stop is Spokane, Washington. Mike is listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mike, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you both for taking my call and happy Lent. Um, here <laughs> Almost. In Spokane, we are ha- we are here in Spokane. We're having a novena mm-hmm. to Our Lady of Lourdes at Our Lady of Lourdes Cathedral. Oh, uh, my question is: How can we thank our priests, sisters, bishops, and the Pope more? And are there weekend thank yous in Catholic parishes for those who work there? Uh, boy, I, I don't know enough to answer that question. Could you give an example? 
Well, I mean, just a, a way of thanking priests, maybe have a weekend mm-hmm. thank you for priests, uh, religious sisters, uh, uh, you mm-hmm. know, once a year for, for priests. Well, you know, the, the, right, the, the Church sort of does that. I mean, in the secular world in the United States, we have Father's Day. Uh, most Catholics that I know use that as an opportunity to thank their spiritual fathers as well. So that's that's a good time, you know, to maybe, you know, take them to dinner. Of course, you the whole pe- people in the parish can't do that, but, you know, maybe give them a gift card to some place that they can go out with some priest buddies or something. Um, and just simply to tell them how much you appreciate their fatherhood uh, with respect to you spiritually. The Church has days which uh, honor religious. We just had what? Candle Mass is a day which in Rome is a celebration of those consecrated uh, uh, consecrated by way of vows and, and, and similar uh, religious and, and people in the, in the Church, the, in orders or the religious institutes of various kinds. Uh, and so that would have been a good day to thank the religious, um, you know, around you. And I think, you know, gratitude, we sometimes, there is sometimes an, at times an attitude I've encountered is, I, somebody once told me, oh, I don't thank people, I thank God for everything. No, God brought people into your life. They made a free choice to help you. Thank them too. We get those opportunities every day. We receive great blessings by our interactions with others. We can thank them. We can be grateful to them. Uh, we can't just hoard up our gratitude to give to God and think, you know, I'm, all, I'm done with that now. We need to thank people in our lives, and we obviously need to thank God from whom we've received everything, including the people in our lives. And that can be a way in which we don't just make it about priests and about, you know, religious, but if we did that with everybody we wouldn't probably even be asking these kinds of questions. Uh, so that's what I would suggest. Find the moments to be grateful in the, you know, in the course of the day and to, you know, somebody does something nice for you, make sure you're gr- grateful and thank them. Uh, that's the beginning of a habit, and habits will extend more broadly if they're good habits. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Two open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is John in the great state of Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thank you very much. Hey, what I'm concerned about is when we die, our soul goes to one of the three places, okay? Does our mind go to? Because they claim that the souls in purgatory can't help themselves, mm-hmm. but they can help us. We pray to saints in mm-hmm. heaven. So how do we? How do they communicate? <laughs> okay. Well, um, I, I guess you're assuming that by the time you die, if you're old enough, you still have some mind left. But <laughs> I'm getting up in those reaches myself, so I sometimes wonder that. Uh, no, the the mind depends on what you mean. Uh, the mind, the intellect the spirit, these all are referring to basically the same thing, and that is the spirit is the soul. We call it the soul to distinguish it from the angelic spirit. And the soul has intellect and will. And during the course of our life, it doesn't remain a generic you know, human soul. It becomes personalized because it's in a body, and it's the, bo- it's the soul of that body. And there is a, a, a substantive unity between that body and that soul. 
Now, when the when the person dies, the person goes to purgatory, and Aquinas speaks of the separated soul. It's separated from the body, but it is very much still the person and all that they knew and all of who they were, and everything is is fully is fully present there. Not in the same way, because when we're, when we're in the body, we have memory and imagination and things which interact with the mind. Uh, but what, we, what we, and we know out of all of that, of course, is, is, is in our mind, in our intellect. Uh, so from that aspect of it, no, those memories staying in the matter where they're encoded, if you will, and what we have taken and gotten out of those, uh, we... Uh, our, our, is in our soul. We, we even experience that in daily life when we have to sort of ponder over things and go down a pathway to find something we're trying to remember. It's not immediately before us. We won't have that difficulty uh, after the resurrection of the body. Uh, and uh, I would say even, even in purgatory. It's more the state and the, the, uh, the will of God that the person having died, having lived their life and died in a certain degree of charity, is now at that fixed degree of charity. They may have things that need to be purged of, uh, attachments to earthly things uh, that were sinful but not mortally sinful, and that is what purgatory does. And that is where their effort goes. And so they, 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 they can pray for us, but they can't pray for themselves because in life, that's the opportunity. Uh, our lifetime to the moment of death is our opportunity to reform ourselves. A chance that the angels never got, they either are for or against God in their entirety. We have something they don't have. We have a chance in this world to convert from evil to good, from error to truth, and we have until the end of life to do that. And if we die in God's grace, in purgatory, we will be purged of any dross, if you will, uh, that uh, we drag along with us uh, to purgatory. And if we have no dross, that's when we say of the soul has died and, and, and gone to heaven. That's what the canonization process is, is meant to ascertain. The, the heroicity of virtue in the individual that indicates a high degree of communion with God such that when they died, they went immediately to him without having to be purified of uh, earthly attachments. That's why most of the saints have said, do that in this life, it'll be a lot easier on you. Uh, the suffering of this world is nothing compared to the purification of the next in purgatory. As for the other place, we won't even speak of it. Be sure to check out Mass Appeal Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Colleen Kelly Mass takes your calls and offers two hours of free, friendly advice from a Catholic perspective. That's Mass Appeal with Colleen Kelly Mast. Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Roseanne in the great state of North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Roseanne, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Hey there. What's your question today, dear? Okay, um, I have a good friend who believes that if you can't get to Mass, that, well, first of all, his definition of not being able to get to Mass is pretty loose. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, really. And he thinks that if you can't get to Mass, you can watch an online Mass, and that fulfills your obligation. I know that's not true, but I'm talking about Sundays. Yeah. I know that's not true, but I thought I would ask you, um, as the expert, to just be absolutely sure, mm-hmm. and so that I could play it back for him. Sure. Uh, well, I, I, your, your insight's absolutely correct. So here's, here's what the Church says. The commandment of God, not the Church, is to make holy the Sabbath. The Church specifies that commandment for Catholics to on the Christian Sabbath, the day in which we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord has been done since the earliest days of the Church. One does so by going and take, giving thanks to God, and thanksgiving is precisely what Eucharistia means in Greek, Eucharist, and we get our word there. So we, the Church specifies that. It's what's called a positive obligation. That means when we're able to do it, we must. When there is an obstacle to fulfilling the obligation, we can be excused. We can even excuse ourselves. And we do that all the time. You know, if you have six feet of snow outside your door, you're not going to walk a mile to the church. You're certainly not going to drive your car. So there we can't fulfill the obligation. You're sick. You can't fulfill the obligation. You're a caregiver. You can't fulfill the obligation. Um, there are many things that come up. There can even be circumstances of charity. You know, so uh, you can't predict what they are, so it's a little bit hard to say. But where it seems like the greatest charity you can do uh, is to care for somebody or an individual uh, rather than, you know, go to church. You may be able to go at a later time in the day even or something like that. But the attitude you describe is certainly not the meaning of the obligation. The obligation is excused, and that obligation is to go to a Mass, to go to a Mass, and watching on television or listening on the radio is not going to a Mass. It does not fulfill the obligation. It never has. It never will. Mind of the Church that every sacrament is received personally by somebody ministering it on the half of the Church, even if it's the baptism ministered by a Jewish nurse, as I described. That's done on behalf of the Church. The Eucharist is confected, the Mass sacrifice is celebrated on behalf of the Church by a priest who is able to do that, as priests can. Confession is given to a priest who is able to absolve from sin. In all of these cases... You, you you can find reasons why you can't do that, why you can't get to confession, why you can't go to Mass, and so on. Uh, but why you can't, for example, well, I can't get to the con- church today, but I'll call father, father up and give my confession over the phone. You can't do that. The church has specifically said you can't do it. Sacraments are something you receive personally from a minister of the church. And so... That'll never be the case in the church. And I think the bishops really understood this and we're coming out of COVID, that a lot of people got this idea. It is not legitimate. And if you're not obeying the church on this point, you're not obeying the God who commanded it and gave the church the authority to make these kinds of decisions. 
Christ gave all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Well, he go. He sent them with power. And among the power is to, to bind and to loose. And that refers just not just to confession, but to set a fit Sunday obligation which we are obliged to except when some moral or physical impossibility prevents us from satisfying it. And that's the care, care thing. Without a moral impossibility like, I don't know, uh, the days were sadly in the past when you couldn't find a mass that wasn't full of lots of abuses in some places. And it would tear your heart out to go. And you just couldn't bring yourself to go. That's a moral impossibility for you. Other people who don't care, they just went to Mass. They didn't care what the priest, you know, danced on the altar with a clown suit on or whatever. But you couldn't do go to that Mass. That's a moral impossibility. Physical, we know those. You're sick, you, you have to work, you're obliged by your employer, uh, your caregiver, all of those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of things you need to, uh, to have to excuse you. And that's you yourself making that decision. And in some case where you, with all honesty... You know, the next time you go to confession, I wouldn't say you need to go on account of this, but just ask the priest, I made this decision. Was was that a good decision? Um, he can say, well, you might have thought of this or that or the other thing, and, you know, then you'll learn something. But if your goodwill is present, I think you'll end up making the right decision in these cases. If you've got bad will or selfish will, not so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next stop is Arlington, Texas. Bob is listening on Guadalupe Radio. Bob, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I wanted to, uh, yes, sir, thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, if you could interpret uh, the uh, scripture uh, writing uh, where it talks about um, in the second coming of Jesus, uh, that one will be taken and one will be left behind. This is in regards, you know, to um, sure. someone in the field or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, until about 1800, there was a universal understanding among Christians generally what that meant. That at the second coming of Christ, which will be at the end of the world and not before, the just will be taken and meet the Lord in the heavens and the evil will be left behind on earth. And then, the, obviously, there's the consummation of creation itself in which all things are consumed and renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. Beginning at about 1800, you started to get theories. Uh, some claim the original found out uh, the original source was a Chilean Jesuit, I think, but I don't know how true that is. But you started to see it. It ended up in things, I think, like the Schofield Bible and other places where Protestants began to teach the idea that, oh, they're after this event where they have the, the just are taken up into, you know, into a heavenly protective area. The world is scourged, uh, and they're pulled out of that. Well, if Christ said, take your cross and followed me, is he really going to spare us from what he endured? Uh, you know, we're, follow, we're to imitate him. And so there is no, this is at the very end of the world when there will be two classes of people existing who are not already dead and in their final place of destiny. And that's the good and those who are evil. The good will go to be with Christ. The evil 
uh, will will suffer the fate of the evil. Uh, so that's the explanation. It comes at the end of the world. Uh, it doesn't spare Christians the cross and the struggle that will take place in the, you know, in that time, which would be the time of the Antichrist at some future date. It doesn't spare us of anything, specifically because there's hardly anything Christ emphasized more than following him in imitation and taking up the cross and, and doing these things. This is fleeing from the cross. Uh, this is not trusting in divine providence, trying to serve him till the last moment that he himself decides uh, to take us, uh, whether personally or collectively, as he will uh, at the end of the world. Uh, Francis is, uh, Fran rather, is in Florence, South Carolina, uh, listening on WFOC Radio. Fran, you're on with Colin Donovan. Just a couple of minutes left. What's your question today? Yes, Colin. Uh, where can I find information on uh, the use of non-51% beeswax candles in church? In the general instruction of the Roman Missal, um, and there, can, there are some uh, exceptions there, um, and it... I'd have to pull pull it up, and I don't have that document here in front of me. But I'm trying to think that there are situations when, obviously, if you have a 51% beeswax candle, there are other times when uh, that means that the 49% of something else, and I think that's usually uh, a paraffin or paraffin-like uh, pro- product. Um, and you can use... Uh, Oil lamps in some circumstances, but not on the on the altar, as I understand it. But you can look that up. Just type in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and uh, you should be able to bring that up. And it speaks of that in the part of the document dealing with the, the furnishings and other things that accompany the celebration of the Mass. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday, coming to you live from the Legatus Summit. We would encourage everybody to pray for the legates here, that they would be strengthened to help transform our culture in America. Until we get together next week, God bless.